in the New Testament, Romans is is different than, than any of the others in a, in a very unique way that makes it an outstanding book to study when we're uh, looking at the subject that we're going to this morning. Of all Paul's letters, they were written to either individuals or to people that Paul had converted or churches that he had started, and there was a problem involved. And so Paul had written the letter simply because he couldn't get to that situation, and he was dealing specifically with that problem. And so when you read Galatians and the other letters of Paul, they're not written as a theological treatise or as to something to totally explain the Christian system. They're written to people that have already been taught. They've already been converted. They already believe, and Paul's already explained all of this, but there's problems, and so he's writing the letter addressing specifically the problems. For example, in Galatia, Judaizing teachers had come in and, and led people back away from the good news that he had delivered. And so we learned something about the gospel, but we learned it in bits and pieces as he deals with that problem. The same with Corinth. Uh, they were full of problems. Uh, the letter is addressed to that problem. When he writes to Philemon, there's a problem with Onesimus that he wants to address. Uh, the other letters also, uh, whether it's Hebrews or Peter or James, there, there is a problem there. And the writer is writing with the assumption that you already understand the gospel, but he's dealing specifically with that problem. And so when you read these letters, uh, sometimes the difficulty in understanding them, and really the only way we do understand them, is because of Romans and the other material that we, that we have. You're in the position of somebody who's listening to one side of a phone conversation. You hear what this person is saying, and based on what he's saying, you're trying to understand what's being said and the questions that's being asked on, on the other end. And sometimes you can come to a wrong conclusion if that's all you, all you listen to. With Romans, we have a very unique situation in that uh, uh, Paul's never been to Rome. He's wanted to go. Uh, many times. He's, I mean, after all, the great apostle to the Gentiles, and here is the greatest city on the face of the earth and the capital of the greatest kingdom that the earth has ever known at this time. Uh, look at verse 11, uh, where he says, I long to see you, uh, that I might impart this spiritual gift. And look at verse 13, right in the middle of the verse, in verse 1. I have planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so. So as Paul writes, he has planned a number of times, and something always gets in his way. He literally longs uh, to see them. In, in this background, uh, Paul is writing, and again as he writes, don't think of Paul sitting in a, a modern study with a computer or a typewriter or sitting in, even with his pen and quill. It's not Paul. Think of Paul as pacing back and forth, the very anxious man who's concerned about the church and concerned what's happened, and dictating this material, and somebody is trying to get it all down accurately as Paul dictates it. Turn over here to the very last uh, chapter in Romans uh, 16 and verse uh, uh, 22. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Uh, Paul's custom was to dictate the information. Uh, sometimes some of the so-called language difficulties uh, are involved in this situation by, by individuals who don't realize that uh, the writers didn't always use the same secretary when they dictated the information. And then sometimes, like for example with Galatians, Paul wrote it with his own hand. 
Uh, at other times, Paul would dictate, like in the Corinthians, and then he had his own spe special signature that he used uh, to let them know that the information comes from him. So Paul is, is wanting to go to Rome. He, he longs to go to Rome. And here he is dictating this letter. Now, from the time frame, as you leave Paul in Acts, flip right back here to Acts, the uh, 28th chapter, uh, beginning with verse 11, you can read about Paul's arrival in Rome. And as he arrives in Rome, he's a prisoner. That's the, how he finally gets to Rome, as a prisoner. And so in verse 16, you read in the 28th chapter, when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Okay, three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. And Paul begins to speak to them. And they've got questions. And so, come on down to verse 20. For this reason, I've asked to see you and talk with you. It's because of the hope of Israel that I'm bound to this chain. They reply to Paul, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you, but we want to hear about your views, what they are, for we know that people everywhere are speaking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers uh, to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, and some would not believe. Okay, now, notice the, the background here. As you end Acts, you're at about 60 A.D., Okay, Luke writes Acts in 60 AD, so it's right before this when we have the event. Uh, Nero is on the throne in Rome. And you, if you've read anything about history, you know that Nero is the Hitler of his day. The severe persecution of Christians by the Roman state under Nero uh, is about to start in a few years. But Christianity is undergoing tremendous persecution by the Jews, and you can see from that statement, uh, the majority of the Jews didn't know much about it. And they had just heard that it was a it was a little terrible sect, a cult, <coughs> we would call it. And every place it went, there was problems. And they had heard, and Paul was concerned, they had heard all kinds of bad things about him. Okay, right before that event, in the last part of Acts, right about 58, you had Paul writing Romans. Okay, now, when you read of it as a little sect that they had heard all these bad things about, it helps you to appreciate the statement, and here's your theme for Romans in verse 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, it's no accident that Paul used that word ashamed. Uh, there were many Christians that did not speak out because they were ashamed. Uh, they were looked down on. Uh, it was intellectually ridiculed by the Greeks. It, was, it seemed to be something foolish. Remember when he wrote to the Corinthians? And he said, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger. Uh, it was being mocked at as something that was foolish. If your God was crucified and killed, then he's pretty weak. And you mean you're so ridiculous to believe that God, the creator of the universe, come and dwelt in, in human flesh? And you guys think idolatry is silly? Well, this is what they were going through. And then there was the, the Jews that this is blasphemy that you say that uh, this simple Nazarene was literally God incarnate. This is blasphemy. We killed him. He deserved to be killed. We need to stamp out this movement. 
Paul understood the thinking, of course, because he believed it that way, and at one time tried to stamp it out also. So from that background, you have Paul writing to Rome, and what you have is the letter written specifically as a theological treatise on the gospel. And his theme is right there, and it is the only book in the New Testament not written to handle a specific problem, but Paul writing to an area where he had not been, and all evidence is that no apostle had been there, and so they're going to get this complete treatise on the good news itself. All right, now, first of all, in his introduction, notice, and by the way, what we're going to cover uh, this morning, and we're going to look at the first three chapters, then we're going to look at chapter um, 7, some statements in that, and come back to 4 and 5. And we're looking at the problem of righteousness itself. Uh, and then we'll go further uh, this, this afternoon. But that's what we're going to concern ourselves with, is just the problem of righteousness itself. Okay, notice he mentions in the first few verses that this information or this gospel was promised beforehand through the prophets, through the scriptures. The great evidence that the New Testament continually calls on was the fact that the prophets who lived hundreds of years ago spoke of these events and the Messiah to come and that everything that happened was in fulfillment of these words and this was called on as, as evidence uh, that this wasn't a coincidence, it's nothing that should shock you, it was spoken of by the prophets and it's been fulfilled <coughs> among you. Then the statement there right after that in verse 4 declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Uh, in other letters, Paul goes into detail on the evidence for the resurrection. Uh, he tells you that Jesus stands as the Son of God based on the resurrection of the dead. Christianity stands or falls uh, on the resurrection of Christ. If it's a historical truth, uh, then Christianity is everything it claims to be. If it's not, then Paul himself said, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And so he states in their mind that this message, this gospel, was spoken of by the prophets of old. And see, this is important, because the Jews, the vast majority, are denying Jesus as the Messiah. And just as we read in the last chapter of Acts, when Paul went to Rome, Paul is going to constantly be taking the Jews back and looking at the writings of the prophets to see that everything was fulfilled there. In fact, this is their number one thing when, when talking to a, to a Jew. Okay, now... He tells them he longs to see them. He, he tells them that he made many trips, many times he wanted to come. He's, he's always uh, prevented from doing so. Uh, another thing you can see in that statement. These apostles were not individuals who walked around with some, the Holy Spirit just dictating their every move. The Holy Spirit is, was, had the job of simply revealing truth to these individuals. But Paul tells you he tried many times and planned to get to Rome, and something kept getting in his way. And uh, a lot of times, that uh, what got in his way, he got arrested and, and went to jail. And by the way, uh, some of the letters that we have for Paul, we would not have if he hadn't been thrown in jail. He was in jail, he couldn't get to where he wanted to go, and so he wrote a letter. You've got Romans, because in the providence of God, Paul couldn't get there. And so because he couldn't get there and talk to him firsthand, uh, he writes... Uh, this treaty, or dictates, uh, to be uh, sent to Rome and give them a treatise of the good news itself. Okay, Paul, why are you not ashamed of the good news? And we, met, we talked a little bit about this last night, that maybe one of the reasons that we're not as vocal as we should be 
in speaking out for Christ and for Christianity is that in our world of organic evolution, in a world of no right and wrong in our society, uh, in a world where the end thing is to be as immoral, really, or at least to challenge the limits, that uh, uh, not too many of us want to come right out and say, yes, uh, homosexuality is sin, adultery is sin, fornication is sin, any sexual relations outside of, of uh, marriage is, is sin. Um, there, there is a definite right and wrong, and you're made in the image of God, and you're accountable for it, and, and the only way that a person is going to be saved, absolutely the only way, uh, is through Jesus, not through any other source or philosophy or anything else, but only through Christ. And so in our society, which uh, in its intellectual pursuits have arrived at different theories and philosophies of life, uh, this has been cast aside among the majority of the intellectuals. And so it's very easy for us to, to sit back and, and really not be as bold as we should. Well, Paul says, I'm not ashamed because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the good news, a righteousness from God. Now notice we're, our topic is the problem of righteousness. A righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith, trust, reliance, confidence. From first to last, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm not telling you anything knew about being right with God. It's always been that way. Anybody that has ever been right with God, it was because of their trust in God. And as Paul gets further in Romans, he's going to go to their great man Abraham and demonstrate to them that no, Abraham wasn't justified when he offered up Isaac. And no, Abraham wasn't justified when he was circumcised. And no, Abraham wasn't justified or made right with God by any single solitary physical act he did. But it was tr his trust in God, and God imputed righteousness to him. And so he says this good news is that there is a righteousness from God uh, that's going to be imputed to you. And he said it's in keeping with all that has been written. Now, Paul has said something here that you and I will listen to with our background. We don't have any problem. But the Jew had a tremendous problem there. Because the, the leaders, uh, the religious leaders, were teaching a method of salvation based on works. And by the way, the, the law of Moses doesn't teach that. The Jewish religious leaders of that day were teaching that. And they really believed that they were going to be justified based on the fact that they could trace their lineage back to Abraham. That's why John the Baptist would make the statement, uh, looking at the Jews, hey, God can raise up seed to Abraham from the rocks there. Uh, you brood of vipers going through the works meet repentance. Or Jesus would say to the Jews, you're not really the descendants of Abraham. If you were, you'd have the kind of faith that he had. But they had this concept that because they were a Jew, uh, the kingdom was theirs, and that uh, everybody else was a nothing, and that all justification came within the law itself. That was the thinking of the Jew. So Paul is saying, and then of course you've got the Gentiles with their understanding of being right with God. So Paul is saying that no, the good news is that you're right with God through faith, and, and, and that is it. Well, now what he's going to have to do is establish that. Uh, why is it uh, that the only way that a person can be uh, justified 
with God is, is, is by his trust, a Jew or a Gentile. Why, does, why, is, why is it this way for the Jew? Why is it that way for the Gentile? And the question arises now, when, on this business of being right with God, how is the Gentile accountable? He doesn't have the law of Moses. And so here the Gentile is wandering around uh, for uh, <clears throat> hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years uh, without any prophets and without the law of Moses. Where does his accountability come in before God? And then here the Jew is, proud as a peacock, with the law, uh, looking for his justification in the law. What Paul now is going to address the Jew and the Gentile, and he's going to talk plain. And his whole point is that when he gets through, he doesn't want uh, any, he's not going to be, uh, like some of us are, so tactful that nobody really knows what you've said when you finish. When Paul gets finished, he doesn't want a Jew that listens to him to think that he's going to be saved by law-keeping or rule-keeping or his own merit. And he doesn't want a single solitary Gentile to think, how can I be accountable before God when I don't have the law? By the time Paul gets through, they each stand guilty, and the only way out is Christ. And that's the good news he's talking about. The bad news is that you're dying and you deserve to die. It's that simple. Why did this happen to so-and-so? You know, why did they die? They die because they're, they're sinners. Uh, why is my body decaying before my eyes? Because I'm a sinner. And I'm dying because I deserve to die. And that's, that's the bad news. And, and the world is in the condition it's in because we deserve it. We're reaping just exactly what we sow. And, and, and that's the bad news. The good news is that there is a way out that God has provided for anybody that will listen to it. Okay, first to the Gentile. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. All right, notice what he said to the Gentiles here. You are without excuse and not believing in God. The invisible God has declared himself by the things that are. Uh, David, uh, not anybody dictating to David, but David out of his own intellect, looking at the stars and the heavens, saying, the heavens declare the glory of God, or a creator. Uh, David looked at himself in Psalms 139, verse 7, and I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And he, he stood back in amazement of it. He said, such, such knowledge, such things, too wonderful for me. And so Paul is saying, look, you guys are made in the image of God. You're, you're intelligent people. You know something doesn't come from nothing. You look out and you see the complexity of the, of the heavens. Uh, you look at nature. You look at yourself. You know that something doesn't come from nothing. From nothing. You know that for, for every effect there's a cause. You know that the cause has to be equal to or greater than the effect. And so when you see all of this, God says you are without excuse and not acknowledging a supreme being. But he said you've turned away from God because you want to be wicked. And he goes back to the very beginning of the history of mankind. You know, today, in our society, people want to leave the impression uh, concerning belief in God that they need something more than what God has given them. It's not the real problem. Uh, the problem is just what Paul is addressing here. 
if you want to do something, you will find a way to rationalize it. And so when people want to be wicked, when they want to sin, when they want to do wrong things, they will look for ways, and so, well, where is God? You know, I can't see him, I can't touch him. Show me your God. Well, Paul's saying, don't pull that on me. Uh, the creator is declared by the creation. Uh, you're intelligent people. Uh, you can see this. You have no excuse for not believing in the creator. But let me tell what you what it ha has happened, he's going to say, as a result of what you've done. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, verse 21, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator. In other words, you got yourself in this mess. That's what he's saying. Don't blame it on anybody. You willfully turned away from God. You willfully chose to live a life where you gratified the desires of your own flesh. And look at the mess you've got yourself in. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. In other words, God doesn't force you to do what's right. He just lets you go ahead. Suffer the consequences. And then through the consequences, be made aware of how right his way is. God gave them over to shameful lust. Even though women exchanged the natural relations for unnatural ones, in the same way the men abandoned the natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what they ought not to, ought not to be done they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do it, but they approve of those who practice them. In other words, they not only do this, but they approve of those who live that way. Uh, that we not only live this way, but we idolize the, the Lewis Taylors uh, and the others of that nature, or the Johnny Carsons, or, or the others who've been uh, married and divorced four and five and six and, and eight different times, and, and who use all kinds of foul languages, or the Madonnas, and, and, and who are guilty of all kinds of vulgarity, that any kind of vulgarity they think of, or the National Endowment of Arts that we pump thousands of dollars of our tax money into, and they draw pictures of Jesus shooting up with drugs, or some guy uh, urinates in a bottle and sticks a cross it, and, and, and they take a picture of it, and the National Endowment of Arts gives him $15,000 for that work of art. Or they have orgies going on for people to come by and watch them engage in homosexual acts, and they call that art. So he says, you not only do this, you approve of it. You sit back and, and we call it art, we call it movies, we call it entertainment, we laugh at jokes that literally mock God. And so he's saying that you not only have you done all of this, you actually approve of, of this way of life. Okay, notice, Paul doesn't leave anybody in a position where they can say, hey Paul, it's, uh, I'm only this way because of such and such, mom, dad, the environment, etc. Or somebody stepped on my foot when I was five years of age or whatever. Um, Paul says, no, 
Don't give me that nonsense. You are accountable. By the way, I emphasize that because we live in a society with a thinking that goes back to Sigmund Freud, the most influential psychiatrist of several generations back, where people are robbed of all accountability. Uh, if you're a certain way, it's probably your mother's fault or your dad's fault or what, it's somebody's fault but yours, uh, that your genes or something is, is messed up and it's <coughs> causing, causing you to be that way. Uh, we don't want accountability for our sins. And Paul says, no, there's no way out, no excuse. You should believe in God. You willfully turned away from God. Well, somebody says, well, Paul, we didn't have the written law like the, the Gentile. How, how can you hold us accountable for this? Verse 12, chapter 2. All who sin apart from the law will perish from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law that are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Notice now, indeed when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they have the law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their own consciences also bearing witness. Their thoughts now accusing and even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. Paul says you guys have the intellect to perceive that something doesn't come from nothing. When you walk out in a yard and you see deer tracks, you know there's been a deer there. And says when you walk out and look at the heavens and the earth and, and, and your body, there is something behind it and you know it. And then they say, well, Paul, we, we didn't have the written law. He says, no, you've got your conscience. You're made in the image of God. You've got a sense of awe. Don't let anybody out there kid you that they're out here living the way that we do in our society. And, and, and just because they reject the Bible, it doesn't bother them. They have a conscience. That's why they go on so many guilt trips. Uh, Wayne Dyer in his book, Your Erroneous Zones, which got him on a multitude of talk shows, uh, an atheist psychiatrist, uh, refers to guilt as the worthless emotion. Says it has put more people in mental wards than any other emotion. But he says the reason you feel guilty is because you believe things are wrong. He's right. If you do something you believe is wrong, you feel guilty. That's your conscience. He says the way to get away from this is don't believe you're wrong. But you know what? He can't get people to stop believing it's wrong. Despite all the shouting and the hollering, the homosexuals have the highest suicide rate of any people in our society. The only people that, that come close to them are the prostitutes. Real high suicide rate among these people. They point the finger at us and it says, because you look down on us, that makes us feel guilty. No, that's not it. Those people don't live and practice their sexuality in the way they do it and do it in good conscience. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that what is taking place is a perversion of nature and the way the human body is constructed. And so it is with the other acts. Nobody ever shot another person and, and did it and then fill it in his conscience. See, if you can perceive that I wouldn't want somebody doing this to me, then you know the other fellow wouldn't want it done to him. Therefore, you know it's wrong. Once you know anything is wrong, you can't do it in your conscience, not condemn you. You just can't do it. Once you perceive it's wrong. 
So he says, you've got a conscience, you've got a sense of all. Listen, you Gentiles. There are some Gentiles, he's saying, who don't even have the law. They live better than a lot of Jews have got the law because they're following their conscience. So you see what Paul has done? <clears throat> he's wiping out all excuses. He's building his case for the need for Jesus and a salvation through faith. Nobody is good enough. You, you Gentiles, you are accountable. You've done all of this. You've rejected God. Your condition is terrible. That's the bad news. Uh, you, you don't think you're going to die and, and, and escape anything. You deserve what you're getting. You brought it on yourself. You've rejected God. Here's the Jew standing over here just as smug as all get out. And now Paul's saying, okay, I'm going to talk to you now. Verse 5 of chapter 2. Uh, your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart. You're storing up wrath for yourself uh, for the day of God's wrath. Now, come on to verse 17. Look at the Jew. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and you brag about your relationship to God. I ran into this and I thought it was good. A old book by William Barclay. It gives a quote here. From the, from the, directly from the Jews on their attitude at this particular time. The Jews always consider themselves as a specially privileged position with, in a specially positioned privilege with God. God, they said, this is a quote, loves Israel alone of all the nations of the earth. God will judge the Gentiles with one measure and the Jews with another. All Israelites will have part in the world to come. Abraham sets beside the gates of hell and does not permit any wicked Israelite to go through. When Justin Martyr was arguing with the Jew about the position of the Jews in the dialogue with Tripo, the Jew said, They who are the seed of Abraham according to the flesh shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient towards God, share in the eternal kingdom. And you thought once saved, always saved was unique to Christianity. Another quote, While therefore thou dost chasten us, thou scourgest our enemies a thousand times more from the wisdom literature of the Jews. The Jew believed that everyone was destined for judgment except himself. It would not be any special goodness which kept him immune from the wrath of God, simply the fact he was a Jew. He had the law of Moses. Remember old, uh, the sons of uh, uh, Eli? What was it, Phineas? And what was the other one's name? Anybody remember? Hophni and Phineas, right. Remember how that when they, they were so ungodly in their lives and, and they went into battle and they were losing, and what did they do? Say, hey, we don't have the Ark of the Covenant here. And they run back and get the Ten Commandments and carry it out there, thinking that, hey, because we're carrying this around, uh, we're going to be victorious. That was the Jews' attitude. The, the law wasn't in his heart. I'm talking about as a nation, not certain individuals. But it was on paper, and, and they were God's chosen, and, their, and their, their righteousness came from the fact that we are the chosen of God, the seed of Abraham, and we have the law. And they honestly thought they were saved. Okay, Paul's going to tackle them. You're a Jew. You brag about your relationship to God. If you know his will and approve, on verse 18 of chapter 2, what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God for breaking the law? As it's written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Hey, you braggers. 
God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Well, what the Gentiles thought of the Jews at this time because of their action. This is again on uh, uh, this quote concerning the Gentiles and their view of the Jews. The Gentiles regarded Judaism as a barbarous superstition. They regarded the Jews as the most disgusting of races and as the most contemptible company of slaves. The origin of Jewish religion was, was twisted with a malicious ignorance. It was said that the Jews had originally been a company of lepers who had been sent by the king of Egypt to work in the sand quarries. That Moses had rallied this band of leprous slaves and led them through the desert to Palestine. It was said that they worshipped an ass's head because in the wilderness a, a herd of wild asses had led them to water and they were perishing with thirst. It was said that they abstained from swine's flesh because the pig was especially liable to a skin disease called the itch and it was that skin disease that the Jews had suffered from in Egypt. The custom of observing the Sabbath was regarded as pure laziness and indolence. It goes on. What he says, what happens to you in your feelings towards somebody when they obviously look on you with contempt and look on you with disgust? How do you look towards them? Do you begin to look for every flaw that you can find in them? As a result of this bragging by the Jews and, and the, the way that they look down on the Gentiles and their contempt for them and, and their lives while at the same time holding up the, this, this special knowledge about God, the Gentile responded in kind and he looked with contempt upon the Jew. So Paul says the name of God is blasphemed because of you. We might say in our society, uh, the Lord's name is blasphemed when there appears among Christians a Jimmy Swaggart or a Jim and Tammy or anybody of like nature or any one of us who identify ourselves as a Christian and get out there and swing with the world, then we make Christianity look ridiculous. And so that is what he's saying to the Jew. Because of this, okay, you, you've got nothing to brag about. So he comes down to look, verse 25. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have to come as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, they will not be regarded as though they were circumcised. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly, only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. Circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. What is he saying? Uh, to put it in our language as Christians, you're not a Christian because you've been baptized. If that's your claim to be a Christian only because you've been baptized, you got wet. Don't kid yourself. You're not a Christian because you partake of a little unleavened bread and, and grape juice on Sunday morning. Uh, you're, you're not a Christian because you managed to keep from dragging a piano down the aisle and bring it in the church building. If you indeed love Christ and you are striving to emulate him in your life and you are honestly converted to him, <laughs> then baptism had meaning and the Lord's Supper has meaning and your song service has meaning and everything about your worship has meaning. But without that, rightness in the heart he says don't kid yourself on those few physical acts that's what he's telling the Jew don't kid yourself and think that those physical acts 
are causing you to be justified before God, they don't. And if the Gentile is right in his heart, he looks better in the eyes of God than you do. Okay, now, what's our conclusion? We're 20 after, let's go ahead and get the, the third chapter here and look at his conclusion. Stress that out a little bit more. I, I misspoke. I was thinking an hour and a half for those that might need to help get lunch ready, but we really probably got more like two hours if you want to stretch it out a bit. Okay, I'll finish this and then we'll take a break. I'll finish the thought then and we'll take a break. Thanks. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way, first of all. Uh, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it's written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our righteous, unrighteousness brings about God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue that my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory. Why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say as we are being slanderously reported, they're saying, and some claim that we say, let us do evil, the good may result. You see what he's dealing with. Because of Paul's teaching of the good news that you're justified by faith, and you do not merit it on your own, and because of your sin, you need this, and that's why you're saved, then the Jew was responding and saying, well, let's just get out there and sin and let God's grace really abound. See, the Jew is arguing for his justification by works. He said, if what you're saying, let's just get out there and sin and let God's grace really abound. Oh, and he's, uh, they were slanderously reporting that Paul and the others were teaching this. Okay, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. In other words, this is what we've been talking about. Paul said, I've proved my case. Jew and Gentile are both under sin, as it's written, going right back to the very things they believed in the Old Testament. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are slipped to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. In other words, he said, hey, don't you guys just apply that to the Gentile. It's written to you. We know it's talking to you. You know what the Jew was doing? In, in some of this, the, the same thing you and I do. We uh, measure ourselves by the other fellow. And so if you're going to church uh, two or three times a week or however, however many times you go, and you don't beat your wife or abuse your children or, or partake of drugs and, and some of these things that seem to really be going on out in the world, then you can look at yourself and say, you, you look pretty good in comparison to that. And say, hey, God, you know, I, God's really proud of me. And so then the fact that we may be selfish, uh, the fact that uh, we may not love as we should, the fact that we may not be as merciful or as kind or whatever as we should, and, and that we, have, we saw, fall so very short of all these qualities that God would have us, but somehow that gets negated because we look so much better than the person over there. 
Well, what Paul is trying to do is get the Jew says, listen, we, I know the Gentile's bad. I just told you how bad he is. Take a good look at yourself. You're not keeping the law either. That both of you stand, all of you stand, as sinners before God. And so then he concludes in verse 23, For all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace. Okay. So everybody's a sinner. Anybody that's justified will be in the grace of God. Now, I want you to skip over to the seventh chapter, because we're, we're on this business of the problem with man being right by God in any way separate from just faith itself. <clears throat> what about this individual that really loves God? And Paul, by the way, was in this, in this position. You really love God, and you really love his law, and you really strive to do the right thing. So here we've got our person that really wants to do what's right, and they're really striving. But what if, in your thinking this way, you're also thinking that my justification before God comes this way. In other words, I'm really striving to do the right thing, but along with that, you still think that I'm going to be right with God because of what I do or, or do not do. What happens to you? What shall we say, verse 7? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive, apart from the law. When the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found then the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy. The commandment's holy. Righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me by no means? But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual. So it is a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it's good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. I, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature or in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. The good that I do is not the good I want to do. Uh, no, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against my law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. What a wretched man that I am. What is Paul saying there? Have you ever tried? I'm, I would guess that most of us have, maybe all of us in the situation. Have you ever made these vows that you were going to do such and such and such, and you were going to be better? You want to be a better wife, a better husband, a better parent, and, and you were going to do better at this, and you was going to do more evangelism, and you was going to speak out more, and you was going to study more, and, and you really set out with all good intention, and then and you're trying to do it all to perfection. What happens? You fall. Fall. In the Olympics, everybody know who the dream team was? Mm -hmm. Totally dominated, right? 
said the best basketball team that had ever been assembled. You know, at least that's what, what they said. Wiped out everybody that played. You know what the dream team shot? And it was outstanding. They made 57% of their shots through that entire tournament. You know what that means? It means that 43% of the time they missed. But 57% was head and shoulders above anybody else. But 43% of the time they missed. We don't hit perfection on anything. If the dream team had approached that from the standpoint, I've got to make every go, they would have, they would, they would have wound up frustrated, depressed, because they couldn't do it if they practiced all day and all night. So what happens many times to good people who don't understand salvation is they live their life loving he's nailed the Jew. Now he comes along even to himself or anybody that really loves God's law and is not like, in other words, there were a lot of Jews who really loved the law and loved God and tried to keep it. They weren't all hypocrites, just like all Christians are not hypocrites. And he gets them. He said, sure, I says, I know what it was like. I'm being honest now. I wasn't as a Pharisee, but I'm being honest now. That law that was intended to give me life constantly made me feel guilty. Because I constantly found myself in a situation where thoughts ran through my mind that shouldn't be there, or I would set out to, I'm never going to lose my temper again, and the next thing you know, I was losing my temper again. Or I was going to do such and such, and when I got in from work, I was just worn out, and I didn't, I didn't do it, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you know. Or I was going to be this perfect person, and I blew it and made the same mistake over again. And so he says that even, not just the Gentile who isn't trying, not just the hypocrite Jew, but the very best of us who try as hard as we can, wind up feeling short. And anybody, and by the way, one of the sad things about people from a, brought up in a fundamentalist, Bible-believing background, if they don't understand salvation, Christianity is not a joy. It can wind up a burden that makes them feel bad all the time because they don't feel good enough. And they're always coming short, or they're always worried about some particular thing they don't understand, or they don't, they're not right on. And so Paul says, man, what a wretched person that I am. Nailed the Gentiles, nailed the hypocrite Jews, but it's worse than that, fellas. He says, the bad news is that even the very best of us who try as hard as we can we find, we find ourselves falling short, and so we say, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Okay, in the next part, we'll respond to this, and then we will get into the salvation process in the fourth and fifth and sixth chapters. The fourth, fifth, and sixth chapters. Okay. Okay, first, before going further, give the opportunity for anybody that wants to respond, make any observations or comments, ask any questions about what we've covered up to this point. I had a, I had a couple of questions you can really, I don't know if you read the ones that I talked to Dad about it, but I just wanted to confirm whether or not I understood this or not. There's a couple places in the first couple of chapters where he says, he'll make a statement, and then he'll say, like, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And I was wondering, 
Yeah, exactly why he was saying that and, and what it actually means when he says that. He says that, I know, in verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, and then over in chapter 2, um, verse 9, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But then he does it, he goes ahead and says, for God does not show favoritism. And then there in uh, chapter 3, he says that the Jews and the Gentiles are all alike, are, are like, uh, are, what? The likes are all under sin. So, now, I mean, there are, there are a lot of people within Christendom that still feel that, that that the Jews are still God's privileged people. And and I'm, you know, I know it gets on in later in the in the book talks more about the Jews, but right. I was just wondering how that fits into it all. Okay, on the first to the Jew. From a historical standpoint, that's true. That uh, remember when Jesus sent them out, he sent them out to the lost sheep of, of Israel, and then when the gospel went out, it went from from Judah uh, in Jerusalem, and then into Judea and Samaria, the ten lost tribes that had been scattered and all. And then we come to Cornelius when he goes to the Gentile, and the the Jews had been prepared. It was a law, it was a schoolmaster, it prepared them, they were God's people that was chosen by him, whether or not they deserved it, simply to prepare the world for Christ. So it went to them only in the sense that God chose that body of people to prepare the world for Christ, it had nothing to do with their righteousness or their salvation, but the information came to them, and they were used, and then it went first to them, but then they all wind up on an, on an equal basis. And then, so far as the point you make, which is uh, good, Mark, that we'll get into uh, later, beginning in the ninth chapter, there are those uh, among Christians. The nation of Israel today stands because of, I believe, a misunderstanding of Christians in, in that area. Um, all of that war that's going on over there and, and the animosity between the uh, Arabs and the, uh, the Jews goes back to 1947 when the United States to allow uh, the United States and Great Britain, uh, because of our Christian views and all, uh, set about to take that land from the Palestinians and bring the Jews there from all over the world because of our belief that they are God's special people. Um, uh, there have been several presidents, like Jimmy Carter was one and Ronald Reagan also, who believed in premillennialism and every time they're shaking swords over in the uh, uh, Middle East, which is almost constant, they're ready for this big holocaust to start and in the, in the showdown to take, take place. And most religious groups believe premillennialism, and they believe the, the Lord will come back, and they believe then that this veil will be taken off of fleshly Israel, and they will be able to recognize the Messiah. But even on what we've read so far, we see that the true Jew has always been the spiritual Jew. And the true circumcision has always been the one that is circumcised in his heart that most of Israel never did walk with God. And, and the true Jew, according to Jesus and the apostles, is the spiritual Jew. Uh, remember when uh, in John the 8th chapter, when uh, they referred to themselves as the Abraham being our father, and he said, no, Abraham's not your father. The devil's your father. 
He said, you're a liar like your father. He said, if Abraham was your father, you would, you would act a different way. You'd do like Abraham did. So he was saying that, uh, you know, literally, physically, yes, but spiritually, your father is the devil, not Abraham. And Paul will wind up in Galatians saying the, the true seed of Abraham are those who had faith like Abraham, so that the church is really spiritual Israel. Anybody else with any comments over what we've covered so far? Okay, um, go to the 21st verse of chapter 3. We're going to come through there, through the um, 12th verse of chapter 4, and then we'll go to the 6th chapter and complete the study this morning on uh, um, this business of righteousness and what we mean by righteousness in Paul's use of the term is being right with God uh, what, what does it mean to be right with God Paul is saying that so far nobody's right with God we've all sinned Jew and Gentile including those very devout Jews who love the law and respected it and reverenced it and tried to keep it uh, they still wound up falling short what Paul is saying when you have the law in your mind he says that we're made in the image of God we actually have the ability to conceive perfection in our mind. Uh, this basketball player in his mind can play a game and make every basket. Uh, the pitcher can throw perfect strikes uh, in, his, in his mind. We can conceive perfection in our mind and we can recognize it, but we fall short. And when we hold ourselves accountable to what we can perceive, the end result is, is frustration because we can never live up to it. And so now, Having nailed that down, he's not only showing about how we're going to be saved or made right with God, but, but he's nailing down the fact that it's the only way. That it, this is the good news. Uh, the bad news is we're everyone condemned, we're dying, we deserve to die. No cop out. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, which the law and the prophets testify this righteousness from God comes from faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by, Jesus, by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. Okay? Where, where is the sacrifice? Where is our righteousness? Faith not in some acts that you've done, not in some rituals, faith not in the goodness of your own life, but it was the sacrifice. Look at that word atonement, and you can divide it up and get at one The word atonement means to be made one with somebody else. And so we were separated from God, we were divided, and now the atonement, uh, the sacrifice of Christ, makes it possible for us to be at one, uh, one with God. How? Through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. Notice, if God tried to make us just in any way other than this, he would have to become unjust himself. 
There is no way that God can hold on to his own justice, which is part of his nature, and justify us in and of our own merits or actions. We simply fall short. So the only way that God can justify us and retain his own justice is to allow the sacrifice of Christ and then to count us just or righteous based on his righteousness being imparted to us. And so you're the judge. Your son or daughter has committed this crime. You want to be honest. Justice demands they be punished. You don't want to carry out the penalty. You're looking for a way out. How can I maintain my integrity, my honesty, at the same time not destroy the very ones I love? And that was the dilemma of God. And the wisdom of God works this out when God lives perfectly himself and then allows himself to be offered up as a sacrifice for all mankind and works a plan whereby I can be righteous and you can be righteous because his righteousness will be imputed to us based on our trust in him. So we stand before God and we're not asking for anything because we don't deserve it and we know it. But we're asking to be counted righteous because we have our trust in him and his righteousness is imputed to us. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is the boasting? What are you and I going to brag about? If at our very best we fall short, uh, that no one of us merits our right standing before God, what have we got to brag about? An understanding of what Paul is saying here would keep all of us from what Alvin and I have been talking about, and that is it is so hard on the one hand to condemn sin and to stand against what is wrong and not be, not appear as self-righteous. Well, Paul says, if you've got this in your mind, that you too are a sinner and that you too fall short, and the only way you can be right with God is as a free gift, then you're not going to have to worry about self-righteousness. The person who feels self-righteous doesn't really understand what Paul's talking about. I believe we have self-righteousness within Christianity. And I believe we've had a lot of it within uh, fundamentalist groups. And it comes about when a person begins to think of his right standing before God because I do certain things right. Those people are sprinkled. I've been immersed. They only do the Lord's Supper once a month. I do it every week. They got the piano. I don't have it. They have the wrong name. That's not it. Uh, do, do whatever is right. But God forbid that any of us would ever think that our right standing before God is because we've been immersed in water or because we partake of a, a few emblems or because we don't drag a piano into the building or we, or we call ourselves no name. There is nothing we have to boast about. Uh, we at our best fall short and the only way we're counted righteous is by trust in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And by the way, we're not saying there's not a place for all the other. We'll get to that later. It is excluded. Boasting. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No. But on that of faith. Notice now this statement. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. And by the way, sometimes that's been interpreted, uh, wait, that's talking about the law of Moses there. But we have the law of Christ. You're not justified by observing any law. Is there anybody that perfectly keeps the law of Christ? 
What is the law of Christ anyway? They, they said, Lord, what is the first and the second commandment? And he said, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Where did Jesus get that? Moses. Quotes Moses twice. Uh, in fact, what out of the Sermon on the Mount is not taught in the Old Testament? When you read that you have heard it said, but I say unto you, don't give Moses credit for saying that nonsense. Moses never taught anybody to hate their enemies. The religious leaders had interpreted Moses, and they wanted to hate the Gentile. They were a conquered nation. And so they said, well, it says love your neighbor. But these people are not our neighbors, so it's okay to hate them. And that's what the rabbis were teaching. So they, they worked out a way that they could hate the people that were their captors. And so when Jesus argues with them, the law is always there. Man, he didn't want to do away with the jot or tittle of the perfection of God's law. But what he was dealing with was the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers' interpretation of the law itself. We're not justified by any law, and Christ didn't come along and give some law that we, now, if anything, the New Testament demands more of us because there were things due to the ignorance and hardness of their heart that Moses permitted that the Lord says not going to be permitted anymore. So there's no, no law that we're justified. We maintain that a man is justified not by observing the law, but by faith. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Okay, what he's saying, and, and notice very carefully the next 11 verses. What Paul is going to say is that there's not a single thing that I'm now teaching that wasn't taught in the law. It's always been this way. There's never been a way that a man was justified except by his faith. And now he's going to go back and show something that the Jew didn't understand. The Jew made a big thing about, sir, you think we make a big thing on baptism. Man, we'd have to fight with the Jew the big thing he made on circumcision. I mean, Paul had to circumcise poor Timothy uh, just to get the Jews off his back so that they'd even listen to it because of his, his Jewish heritage. What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to brag about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. As you're, as you're reading the Old Testament, that's in Genesis 15, 6. Okay? In the 17th chapter is when Abraham is circumcised. In the 22nd chapter is where he offers up Isaac. But here in the 15th chapter, it says Abraham believed God and he was credited or imputed to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. He said David understood this. David knew he sinned. David knew he committed adultery. David knew that he had a good man. 
uh, put to death to try to cover it up. David knew there was many sins in his life. Read his prayer in Psalms 51. David knew that the only way that he could be counted righteous was because of the goodness of God. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, now here's his whole point. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Okay, what is he saying there? What physical act did Abraham perform whereby he could go to that physical act and say, this is where I got salvation? What if you could go to a physical act and I got it when I did this right? You've got a little something you might brag about. God is doing this purposely. God wants us to know that our righteousness is his free gift to us based on our trust. Nobody has any right to boast or brag. The agreement or the covenant was made with Abraham. And Paul in Galatians will go back to Abraham again that when God made that covenant, nobody has the right to add one thing to it, right? That's his point in Galatians. Uh, when even a man makes a will, Nobody can come along and, and add one word to it, even in human terms, Paul uses. We well, say God made a promise to Abraham, and the promise was that righteousness would be counted to man based on faith. And he said this happened before Abraham did one thing, and if you people are going to come along and add physical conditions, you are adding to the covenant that God made with Abraham. So Paul said, I'm not telling you anything new. In reality, it's always been this way. The circumcision that you people have is a seal and a sign of the faith you have in your heart. In the 70th chapter of Genesis, Abraham is told to be circumcised and to circumcise his household. And he's told that circumcision is a sign of his covenant with God. Okay, he's given the command, and then as he's given the command and he carries it out, they're also told that anybody who was not circumcised would be cut off would not be in fellowship with God. How do you justify that? How do you reconcile that? On the one hand, it says he's justified by faith. Uh, righteousness is imparted to him based on his faith. It's before he's circumcised. But then he's commanded to be circumcised. And also given that as a sign of the covenant. And also told that anybody that refused that would be cut off and out of fellowship. Okay. And a lack of rebellion and a lack of, lack of commitment faith. faith, right. So it's, you see what we're saying that, uh, you say, well, wait a minute. They had to be circumcised or they would not be in fellowship, but yet you're justified in faith, by faith over here. So if you're justified by faith, then why do you have to do this or have to do that? This over here is an expression of the faith that's in your heart. And if the action doesn't take place, then there's a lack of commitment a lack of faith, a rebellion against God that's in that heart. Why necessarily circumcision? Well, it could have been anything. Uh, God just simply chose that, uh, sort of like the rainbow. I think he just chose that as a sign and used it in that way. But it was, uh, 
by the way, so far as it wouldn't hold up today in the way it did then. Remember uh, when Paul circumcised Timothy, for example, and you and I would think, well, how would anybody know whether Timothy was circumcised or not? Well, they didn't have bathrooms the way we have, and they didn't dress the way they did and all, and, and men all knew what, if they worked together and they were together, they all knew whether or not anybody had been circumcised or not. And so right away in their public bathhouses and all that, that stood out. And so everybody knew that this, uh, this, this male here was circumcised, and, and it stood out as a symbol. See, the, the Gentiles were not. It could not have been a sign if it were common among the Gentiles. And so it was something that was not common among the Gentiles, and yet they did it. And by the way, that it's interesting that uh, living at their time, there was health benefits from doing it. Uh, but uh, especially at that time, I don't, if a person necessarily wouldn't be a big thing right now, depending on the individual and, and the country he was living in. But at that time, there were definite health benefits uh, in being circumcised. But I don't know that they understood that at, at that time. But it could not be a sign except that other people were not. And remember when they moved around, you could tell that the others were not because of uh, remember, they would want to make it a covenant with the seed of Abraham, and there'd be this big argument that their men are not circumcised, and yeah, we'll be in covenant with you if you'll be circumcised. So the, to be assigned, it has to be something that's different than, than what, what is around you. And the only thing that, that I can see uh, so far as that is the fact that no other people were. It actually had a health benefit. Uh, and, uh, and it stood out as a sign, and they recognized one another on, on that basis. You mentioned that Abraham was credited with righteousness in chapter 15, but it's not until 17 that he's actually circumcised. But uh, he didn't really, God never told him, and he didn't have the written word like we do, but God didn't tell him in chapter 15 to be circumcised. So it wasn't something he put off or rebelled. Right, sure. So a person who doesn't have understanding or knowledge of baptism in you would put in that category between 15 and 17 okay uh, we'll get to that what you're saying that's that's a very good point the only point that I'm making right now is that justification came before a physical act and Paul makes a big point on the fact that man didn't have any room to boast that anything physically he's done that he could look back to he could count as boasting and so then the command is given, and he says the fulfilling of the command actually showed the faith that was in his heart. And if he didn't fulfill that, they would not, in other words, a Jew would not receive into fellowship somebody that was not circumcised. And they would not, and they would break their fellowship with God. But still, the justification was by faith. What Paul's going to wind up saying is all physical action is a result of faith. And love. And so he would say in the Galatians, the faith that avails is a faith that works through love. Well, what happens sometimes is that we put the emphasis on the action instead of the faith in the heart. And it's uh, in the it's what's in the heart, and it will express itself. Now, let's look at man from two different areas, from God's standpoint and from man's standpoint. You and I know a person's faith in only one way how the action and the manifestation 
I can't see into the heart. Okay, so I and that's why that the Lord tells us to be fruit testers. You'll know them by their fruits. Or James says, show me your faith without works. I by my works will what? Show you my faith. So from our standpoint, we know, for example, you got the statement, a confession with the mouth is unto salvation. Okay, there is no way that I can know that you believe in Jesus except you acknowledge that either with your mouth or if you can't talk in some other way. I can't know it. There is no way that I know that you have chosen to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection except in the way God gives me. And so in other words, when, when you say I want to be baptized and I know that, that baptism symbolizes his death, burial, and resurrection and you know it and it symbolizes the washing away of sins, then I can say, hey, you not only believe in Jesus, but you realize that Jesus is a sacrifice for your sins and, and you're going to, in faith, obey him. Okay? So I see the action. But I'm saying God looks at the heart. And he sees the, and God, the, God does not wait and say, you do this and you're saved. You're justified right here. The thief on the cross, you and I would look up there and if we didn't have the words of Jesus, we'd say, hey, is this a deathbed confession? Uh, is, is he dressed, uh, now he has no choice and he's doing that? I don't know his heart. But Jesus could look into his heart and he could know that, hey, this man's heart is right. He's truly repented. He truly believes. And he says, this day that you shall be with me in paradise with only the Lord himself. Now, the reason I think this distinction is important, I really believe that we have taught some wrong things and misrepresented the gospel in that we have tried to play God, we should not receive into fellowship anybody who doesn't obey a command, a direct command of God, or who does not acknowledge Jesus or anything of that nature. We should not. We are looking at the proof. But then to go to the point where we put salvation on a physical line and we negate a thief on the cross possibility. Uh, for example, uh, by the way, this actually happened, heard it from my own ears, uh, uh, radio program, Jess of Georgia, and a man from the Church of Christ uh, on the radio, been preaching on baptism all week, our favorite topic, used to be. And so anyway, somebody wrote in asking him a question, and, and this actually is no hypothetical thing. They, they said, listen, what about this guy that's going to be baptized? He believes, he's repented, they built their case, and on the way he's in a wreck and he's killed. And so, well, I was curious as to how he's going to answer that too, you know, and, and I was a young preacher at the time and, and was, you know, CFC to the core. And so, here's the way he handled it. He says, well, if you've got two young people going to get married, and there's an automobile accident, and one of them is killed, are they married? No. And that's what he answered it. Well, can you see what that uh, truth is logical? Can you see what this does to that person out here who's thinking, what are you saying? Uh, that a man can believe and, and repent of his sins and, and some act beyond his control wiping him out and, and, and you're saying it. In other words, obviously the most important thing in the world is get that person. That's why that sometimes we push our kids into being baptized when they're too young. Because we're scared to death. You know, something's going to happen before we... By the way, that's how baby baptism got started. 
back when infant mortality was very high, when a lot of when people would have as many kids as I've got and more, hoping that half of them would make it into adulthood. That's the way it used to be. And so they would worry. And so this is how the Catholics got back to let's get them before they die. Well, trying to do something there, I believe, has cheapened the gospel. A man is justified by his faith in the blood of Christ. And God counts him righteous based on his repentance and his faith. But from our standpoint, you and I, just like Abraham, when do I know that Abraham believes God? When, I, when God gives him that command, and, and that old boy goes out and circumcises his whole household. And, and he doesn't qualm a bit. Well, I can see that and say, hey, that guy believes in God. you know. He, and then when he, he takes Isaac and, and he carries him up there to offer his own son up, then I say, Abraham believes. Well, God is showing us. He, he didn't, it's no accident he asked Abraham to do that. He's letting us see what real faith is. And we ought to be willing to obey God whether or not we understand what he's at. Because God knows everything. Put your trust in him that know, knows it all. So he's letting us see what real faith is. It's that kind of commitment. But from God's standpoint, it's in the heart. And everything else is an expression of what's in the heart. We don't take anything away from baptism by teaching just the way that Paul taught it in the same book he's going to talk about baptism because you're not going to admit anybody into your fellowship who refuses to be baptized uh, that, uh, or who refuses to acknowledge Jesus. I mean, what do we do when somebody responds? We, we, I, don't, I don't know if he believes in Jesus unless he tells me. And, and then when it comes to baptism, you have a direct command. I mean, it's a no if, ands, or buts, a direct command. So the guy says, no, I believe in Jesus. I don't want to be baptized. Now, I'm going to tell him, no, baptism is, is, there's nothing holy about that water. But you obviously have not reached the point where you put your faith completely in the Lord. If you're still challenging him and saying, Lord, that I'll do this if I agree with you. Abraham didn't talk like that. He didn't say, Lord, you mean kill Isaac? Or, Lord, you, you sure you circum, circumcision? You know, that's going to be painful for a few days, you know. What are you talking about? Uh, that wasn't Abraham. So I'm saying that what we have done, we have put it to people like, uh, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're rejected because you're not baptized, and that's not the problem. The problem is faith. And it ought to be, no, you're saved by faith. But if you really have faith in God, it will express itself. But by teaching it that way, we also do not set ourselves up as judge and jury of all the individuals in the world who have died and maybe were ignorant of or didn't have the opportunity or had been mistaught concerning some physical act. Leave those people in the hands of God. God knows their heart. And what does it accomplish for us to go back and judge everybody's grandmother and grandfather and, and people who are ignorant of some particular point? We don't need to get into that. We just need to limit our own fellowship to people who have expressed their faith. And so far as other individuals, whenever you have the opportunity, reason with them and, and study with them. 